I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. use his own famous phrase, Eamon Dunphy was a good player, not a great one, but as for his career as a football pundit, journalist, author and broadcaster for more than four decades since he hung up his boots, it's difficult to think of anyone in Irish society with his talent to stimulate, challenge and enrage at those things he has been truly world class. Eamon, <laughs> it's great to have you with us it's uh, today. Nice. Um, and add to that list of, of careers. Uh, podcaster now is host of the highly successful The Stand. Uh, you continue to uh, ask the hard questions. What drives you to, to keep at it? Well, I'm interested in the work. I'm interested in the subject. So we do sport, we do soccer on The Stand, but we also do news, current affairs, um, and politics, which are things I'm interested in anyway. And I'd be reading about them, uh, listen to other programs and I kind of feel that while I want to work and while I'm interested in the work uh, that I should do it. Thank God I have the health that allows me to do it and podcasting gives you the freedom to do your own thing. Mm. You don't. I am the boss which is uh, the first time in my life I've ever <laughs> been the actual boss. But you've always done your own thing. Um, <laughs> what, what, I, what I noticed about it Eamon um, is that you know if people only knew you from your persona on yes. the RTE panel, opinionated, controversial, yeah. always entertaining, uh, flamboyant at, at times. They might think, they might not recognise it, but yeah. are, they, are they two sides of the same, the same coin? Yes, I mean, I, as a, an interviewer, as opposed to an interviewee, in other words, if I'm doing the interviewing, I'm there to ask questions rather than to give my own opinions, and I'm very happy in that. And I'm not actually, and never have been, when I did radio work uh, for Today FM, an aggressive interviewer. I think it's more important to um, take time and uh, to go deeper rather than to be shouting at people mm. uh, and looking for um, a, a quick hit. That's not the way uh, to understanding most issues. Your critics would say that he's an attention seeker, that he's yep. deliberately, you know, um, contrarian, we'll say, um, that you reveled in the notoriety that you often uh, attracted. Um, did, did, you, did, did you resent that? And do you resent that view of you? Or was it part of the, the role, like, you, as you famously said, to Bill one night, show, it's showbiz, baby? Um, no, I... I Basically, on football, I was working with great people like Giles and Brady, Bill O'Herlihy. They were really outstanding people, and they all brought something to it, and I brought something to it, um, which was a, perhaps a willingness to um, say 
things about players or to criticise Jack Charlton when he was the Irish team manager. Now, that uh, required a degree of, um, shall we say, abrasiveness. Uh, and you had to stick by your guns. Um, and it was perhaps unusual to find somebody who didn't want to jump on the bandwagon. Um, and there were times when that was very difficult. Um, but I got support from um, my employers, which in, in the case of Jack Charter was the Sunday Independent and um, RTE. I think if I had been what might be called a controversialist, somebody looking to make trouble, I wouldn't have got that support. I think the fact that I was genuine in my view um, was discernible to my employers, but also more importantly to the audience. Um, I, I, you're right to say some people thought I was um, being provocative to make a name for myself, mm. but it, clearly uh, I, that, you couldn't sustain that. Sometimes it, it got hot and heavy, mm. but I think people liked it. It got a big audience and it was, it was authentic, which is very important. Those days, um, drawing in hundreds of thousands uh, of uh, viewers and, and the, on the big nights, the big matches, the, the, sh the, the showbiz stardom that you, that you enjoyed. It's a, it's a long way from your start in life, uh, Eamon. Yeah. Um, son of Paddy and, and Peg Dunphy growing up in a single room in 1950s uh, Drumcondra. You've described it as a very loving home, but uh, in, in your book, um, you've written about it. Uh, it was a time in Dublin marked by austerity or worse, the grinding poverty that came with unemployment presided over by a callous and greedy ruling class. How did that uh, upbringing shape you? I think it um, gave me a keen understanding of how it feels to be um, poor, uh, to be the victim of injustice. Um, also, it gave me a sense of perspective to appreciate good things that you had. It certainly gave me uh, a sense of right and wrong, just and unjust. And that's something that made me take an interest in politics, which I always had done and have done, um, whether they be Irish, English or American politics. and. I think that um, tough upbringing, which it was, um, can make you or break you. But it did give me determination to confront injustice where it was in front of me, to fight for rights of people. Poverty generally doesn't confer much on people. But one thing it does is it gives you a look at a certain reality that awaits if society isn't careful. Mm. You said in an interview with the Irish Times uh, a few years ago um, that your start in life has lasting effects that you can never overcome. Uh, you, you never catch up on the privileged, even if you're ostensibly successful. Yes. I thought that was interesting that, that, that it does leave a mark. You know, I wonder how... Yeah. Did, did, did it drive you? Because you did become successful in life, but did you ever? You never felt that you had caught up on a certain no. class of people. No, it, it doesn't. If you 
start disadvantaged, um, mostly that will stay with you for the rest of your life in some form or another. Um, you might not get an education. For example, I didn't. I left school when I was 13. I was forced to. Um, now, that, for obvious reasons, is a huge disadvantage. Uh, and there were lots of jobs and lots of work that I couldn't do. I don't think you do ever catch up. Um, but I don't think your life should be about catching up. I think what you should do always is appreciate what you've got. And my mother and father always instilled that. My mother in particular always instilled in me the notion that although we lived in very modest circumstances, in poverty really, um, we were very lucky compared to other people. And the other people she would have been referring to were youngsters in Africa. I mean, mm. you often wonder why Irish people are so good at giving for you know, what we used to call black babies, um, putting money in boxes, sending off to charities, supporting Goal and Trokera and all of that. And it's true that Irish people are amazingly generous in those things. I think it comes from our own poverty and our own mm. sense that back in the day, in the days of the famine, back in the days of grinding poverty in Ireland, rural and urban Ireland, that we'd had bad times. I mentioned that you, it was a real sense of a loving home. You talked there about the, um, the perspective that your, that your parents gave you, they loved each other very much, and, and yes. you and your brother as well. But I wonder that they also give you um, that, that sense of integrity. They were clearly people of integrity themselves. Your father, he refused to join the local Fianna Fáil common, yeah. even though it meant losing his job at a time of mass unemployment. Yes. And your mother took the landlord to the high court to stop being evicted yes. from that room uh, in Drumcondra. So yes. did you get that sense of, of standing up for your principles from them? I think I got my character. You do get your character from your parents. My brother was a very fine man. God rest him. He's dead now. Um, and we were both very fortunate. We grew up in a happy home, in a loving home, in a home where religion was very much... Um, real um, and my mother's character strength of character carried the family through when there was you know really rough times uh, money ran out on a Wednesday uh, and that was like the average week mm. uh, pay didn't come until Friday and lots of people still live like that um, not so many as used to but many people that's the way they live uh, paycheck to paycheck, and the paycheck doesn't go all the way. So if you've grown up in that um, background, with that background, it's very hard to be, you know, greedy, whinging, mm. uh, grasping, looking for more. You really do appreciate what you have. And I'm, I think that all my life I've been able to do that. I hope. Mm. I talked about integrity and principles. Where did you, did, which of them did you get your sense of devilment from? <laughs> the of a, a sing song and a, uh, a flutter. I and... think uh, my father was a, a, a lovely man. He liked, he liked sing song, he liked his pint. Uh, he was a very popular man, uh, very genial. Yeah. Man. So that's probably where I got him. My mother was too, actually. She loved go to pictures and that. They were, they were wonderful people. And 
uh, there's a bit of devilment in most in most <laughs> Irish people anyway. A bit of fun. Uh, and Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, Football then, um, as with so many working class kids the world over, football becomes your, your root of escape or certainly a chance of a, of a better life um, and it's with Manchester United and yeah. Manchester United you'd seen the Busby Babes play yes. at Daly Mount Park yep. um, not long before the, the tragedy of the Munich air disaster so to get scouted and chosen to go play there I mean that must have seen that must have been a fairy tale type scenario Yes it was I was offered a trial actually a two week trial and luckily the, the match Matt Busby watched. He watched 45 minutes of a match I played in, or half of it, which I think was half an hour. Um, I played well, and I was given a two-year contract, um, and it was a, it was like a dream. Uh, it was very, very competitive. They were the biggest club in Britain. It was two years after the Munich air crash. It was 1960. The Munich air crash was 1958. They were the most glamorous and loved club uh, they'd lost a great young team. Um, but to be uh, picked to go to Manchester United was um, an amazing break, or that's the way it seemed. Mm. But of course, uh, it was a dream shared by every kid in, oh, in these islands. So the best young English footballers, the best young Scottish footballers, George Best, it was the best young player from the north of Ireland and just a year behind me at Manchester. All of those people were there, so it was extremely competitive. Mm. So it was a break, uh, but it was, you, you know, you had to be really good. And how did you take to life as a footballer? Um, with determination, um, really, uh, we didn't, we were in, living in digs, the food wasn't good. Mm -hmm. uh, they made promises to young players that they never kept about you'd be looked after. It would be like being at home, and it wasn't really. You were left most of the day to your own devices, um, and you could get into divilment, mischief, in betting shops and all kinds of places. I wouldn't want my own 15-year-old son to go the way we went. And in some cases, and in, ca in the case of George, for example, who was a lovely person in many ways, and a great, great footballer, as everybody knows, you know, George spiraled out of control in the end, and a lot of that started when he went as a 15-year-old boy to Manchester. We started going. We used to hang out together, going to the dogs. You know, 
on a Thursday or Friday night, losing the week's wages mm. before they were even in our pocket. But um, the, the life was, I wasn't leading the right life. I never developed upper body strength. I had bad bronchitis, which I've had all my life because I wasn't wearing the right clothes. Uh, and you have to imagine what it was like back in those times for a 15, six-year-old boy in a strange city, which is full of, you know, danger, temptation, whatever. Mm -hmm. And we were not looked after as we should have been. Um, that was my feeling anyway. Uh, but I understood when I was 17, I was, that was a key moment because you were either let go or you signed a contract as a professional. And I signed, I was offered a contract as a professional. So I had ability, but I didn't have the upper body strength. And eventually I knew I'd have to play in a lower league. But I was up for that. Mm. I left United after five years, uh, when I was 19. Went to York, then went to Millwall, where I uh, had a career, I suppose, uh, Tommy, as a journeyman. Mm. You know, I was... Uh, championship player it would be now um, and I had that career for eight nine years um, I was in England for 17 altogether 17 years and I've great respect for journeymen I was one myself um, it's a, an honorable uh, way of life you're not a star you don't get paid like a star we certainly didn't in those days um, but you have your little dreams. I played in three sides that got promotion, which, as any journeyman player will tell you, was fantastic. And again, to go back to the idea of some perspective, I always looked, I, I think all of us who played football looked at other guys and you thought the jobs they were doing, mm. guys you'd been to school with, you know, and they were doing jobs you wouldn't want to do on a building site or driving a van or opening the door for big fat cats, yeah. or whatever. So you could say, well, we're out in the fresh air, it's healthy, we have a lot of time off, uh, and we're a big deal on the street. <laughs> but yeah. it, it was it kind of... compensations. Yeah, I mean, at the back of my mind was always the, the, the reality that when I was 30, whatever, yeah. I'd have to find another way to get a living. Can I ask you, how did your experiences at Millwall and uh, in, your, in your lower league uh, days, you talked about there, about the journeyman, yep. how did they inform your views on, on football uh, going forward? And I'm talking about both your experiences with, with your fellow professionals. For example, yep. you dedicate only a game, which we'll talk yes. about in a moment, the, the seminal, uh, one of the great football books, one of the first real honest looks at life as a player. It's dedicated to the good pro. Yes. Uh, and also the people running the game, the the higher ups, the yes. the administrators, the the directors, and even mm. even managers. That you know, did, did those did experiences in your playing career inform a lot of what we heard from you after your playing career? Yes, and experiences before my playing career of injustice and unfairness um, was very evident in football. The people who ran the whole show, the directors. Um, uh, those kind of people um, weren't in it for the right reasons, mostly. My view of 
the game uh, and the view I still hold was formed by being a player and seeing how callously players could be treated. For example, if you broke your leg or you got a, a life or a, a career-threatening injury, an ACL, say, a ligament injury, out the door, gone, nothing. 500 quid, goodbye. That was it. That wasn't right, but that's the way it was. So, Brutal. Brutal, yeah. It was a brutal game, and it isn't now. Um, the players are... Uh, the top dogs, they get paid accordingly. They're treated like movie stars. Uh, and they give so much pleasure. Um, and I don't begrudge them one penny. Mm. I don't know any f former footballers, I said, who does begrudge them. Um, you get your first Ireland cap uh, in 1965 mm. yep. as well. Um, and this was a, an odd time for, for modern people to look back on because this is when... Ireland teams were picked by a selection committee yes. called the Big Five <laughs> of, right. of the FAI. It's, like it's incredible to think about it yeah. now. Um, how did you feel about playing for Ireland? And this was a time, as I said, when when it was, I mean, I know it's, it's obviously had its problems in recent decades, but it was being run very in a very strange way. Um, how does that colour your uh, memories of, of playing for Ireland? Or what was that experience like? Well, uh, it was extraordinary. I was playing for York City and... I'd had a few good matches for York, who were playing in Division Three, uh, and there must have been newspaper accounts of uh, me playing well for York City. And the Big Five read the newspapers. The Big Five picked the team. Mm. And Johnny Carey, who was one of the greatest football men in the history of Irish football, uh, and a marvellous man in every single way, uh, was the manager. But they gave him the team. And... He was given, we had this World Club, uh, Cup playoff match in Paris against Spain. And it was to get to the 1966 World Cup. And he finds himself managing a team uh, that I'm in. <laughs> and he does not know who I am. And it's, that was the way it was. I mean, it's mind-boggling when you think about it now. Um, but that's the way it was. And um, I, I was thrilled. Um, and we had a good team. Giles played, John, John, Giles, Tony Dunn, Charlie Hurley, Noel Cantwell, Andy McAvoy, and really top players in, and me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was picked. I think they like to pick a rising star. And for some reason, they got it into their heads that I was a rising star. I didn't play too bad on the night. We lost only 1-0 yeah. to Spain. You have to have been a very different sort of player than many of your peers. We talked about only a game came out. It was the account of the 73-74 season, your last season at Millwall. As I say, said before, groundbreaking work that's still in print today. It's regarded as a, as a classic. But you were also writing newspaper columns and voicing political opinions, yes. matters like anti-apartheid. Bloody Sunday, you wore yep. a black armband, which was a, a brave and, and big thing to do at the time. Um, is this the formation of, are you, are you form, forming into the character that we would come to know so well? Um, strong views on matters, on, on right and wrong, but also other people saying, this guy's a troublemaker, this guy's... Mm -hmm. Standing yeah. out, this guy is drawing attention uh, on himself. You must have really stood out as a as a player that in those days. Yes, um, and ironically, Tommy, 
I, my big dream at that stage of, say, Bloody Sunday was to be a coach and to be a manager in England because I had great ideas and, and ambitions in that field. And, of course, when I put that black armband on, then I was never going to be a coach mm -hmm. or never going to get the job. And when I sort of got involved in uh, working to get young players educated, that was causing trouble. So being a troublemaker uh, destroyed any possibility that I'd ever get a job as a coach or a manager. So I was really killing myself. I didn't know what I was doing. But I knew in the case of Bloody Sunday that, um, you know, what the paratroopers had done was a crime and the English people should know. And football was a good way. And I rang up a lot of players and they all said no. Mm. I said, so I said to myself, well, do it yourself. And I did it. And th 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 that's what I'm talking about, the difference that these other guys clearly said, look, and within the rights to say, I'm thinking of my livelihood here, but you had this sense that you, <laughs> despite your livelihood and, and that in yeah. the impact it would have, that you would take this stand. Yeah, it was just necessary that somebody, and I was politically aware enough. I mean, it, it's not right to criticise the other guys. I mean, they just weren't polit politicised. They mm. weren't into it, you know. It wasn't their thing. It was my thing, you know. I'd be talking about politics, reading about politics and all of that. It's not a criticism of the other guys. I just felt compelled to do it. I thought somebody should do it. So when your time uh, in England comes to an end, you return to Ireland and what brings you back is a man who will feature uh, hugely in your story and, and, and already had at this stage. Uh, John Giles brings you back in his efforts um, to turn Shamrock Rovers into a big force Yes. at the time. That wasn't a happy experience. It wasn't a happy homecoming no. for you though, was it? No. Um, John wanted to come home. Uh, he, his... He had a relationship with uh, Louis Kilcoyne, who was his brother-in-law, and um, they owned Shamrock Rovers and Kilcoynes. And the idea John had was that instead of exporting our best young players, we could keep them here uh, and develop here a side that would be good enough to play in Europe uh, and be professional. It was a kind of dream. It was very, very idealistic, um, and it didn't work. The League of Ireland wasn't conducive to what we wanted to do. Bad pitches, a lot of begrudgery, and at that time, the media didn't like John. He wasn't very media-friendly as a player or as a manager. It's one of the great double acts, you know, that you and him, and like any sort of... <laughs> duo, the, the, the degree to which you complement each other, yeah. I guess, was always part of it. And, you know, you mentioned there that maybe he was he was the rock where, when you were flying oh, yeah. high. And, like, how, how I mean, obviously, the, the, the genius that was Bill mm. um, was so crucial to that as well. But how, how crucial was, was, was John to your success and your profile and, and, and fame in this country and impact in this country? Well, John was um, everything that I wasn't. He was calm. Uh, he was considered. But what Sean threw was his knowledge. John provided that, and I provided something else. That, and that's where I started saying, listen, it's showbiz, baby. I have to have a laugh, <laughs> yeah. you know. But um, 
John was really brilliant, and Bill was a, an outstanding journalist. And every match, as you know, Tommy, because you do it, every match has a story around it. Uh, when you're doing the Champions League, when you're doing the Europa League, or doing international matches, there's a story. Mm. What's the story? Um, and you have to get at the story, talk about the story, inform the viewers uh, about the story. This is what, these are the critical matters. And when Liam, himself, John, uh, and you've done it with Graham Sinesse, Brian Kerr, people like that, the, you need good people who know what the story is, uh, who can flag for the listener, the viewer, what the story is and how. And Bill was very good at that, having been a, an, an outstanding journalist. Mm. So that's how it worked. I have to believe people have the ability to discern if you're being honest or not. Yeah. In other words, if you really believe it or if you're messing. I think if you're messing, people act, you know, they mm. get fed up with that. Whereas if you're really wrong, yeah. <laughs> if you really call it wrong, uh, as I did with Ronaldo initially um, and with Platini uh, terminally, uh, if, you, if you're wrong, that's okay. But you need to be right a lot more than you're wrong. Yeah. But if the wrong ones are spectacular, and I've had a couple of spectaculars, <laughs> But Jack was Jack Charlton thing was was a good example of that. Most of the football community didn't like the teams Jack picked or the way he played the game. But it was nevertheless uh, true that he qualified us for the European Championships in '88, the World Cup in '90, and these are things we'd never achieved. And '94 again, of course, uh, the World Cup. So. Um, for the football community, Jack's style of football was crude uh, and he made bad use of the players that he had, great players at his disposal, sometimes left them out of the team. Ronnie Whelan in 1990 been a good example of that. Now, that was a genuine debate within the football community. For the wider community, who are now engaged in soccer for parties and barbecues and watching the mm. matches, and it was fabulous. Um, I was a pain in the neck, you know. Uh, and I didn't know what I was talking about. You contradicting the great man. But I had to do it. I mean, it was the right thing to do. But the, the difference with you is that, you know, somebody might have, have that sense, but look on the, well, look, on, on balance, it's, it's great for the country, etc. But you, you felt this one issue was, was worth taking a stand against the whole country on. So this is, yeah. you know, one of your, your, your especially it comes to a head, uh, against e in the, the game against Egypt at Italia 90. But yeah. you had been picking yeah. over selection of Mick McCarthy ahead of David, David yeah. O'Leary, for example, the treatment yeah. of Liam Brady. To take that stand against a whole country, you know, that that sort of... Um, that I, I believe this, I'm going to go there. I tell you what it was, Tommy. That Sunday, it was a Sunday, the game against Egypt. The, every GA club in the country almost made their clubhouses available so that they could watch a soccer match mm. from the World Cup. The whole place was quiet. Everyone in Ireland was watching um, the Irish soccer team. I thought it was beautiful. Really moving. Mm. And um, I remember before the match saying to John, it's amazing, because soccer used to be the foreign game. Mm. You know, it used to be the Shawnees game and all this old stuff, you know. 
And then they played this term, rubbish. It was absolute rubbish. Long ball stuff. It was terrible. And I just said, this was shameful. Uh, now, part of what was hurting me was that the game had for once got a whole country watching. And I wanted the game I loved to be loved mm. and to be seen, you know, um, and the players. Um, and it wasn't that day. I think there is a right and wrong way to play football. Obviously, to some extent, it depends on the footballers you have, the players you have at your disposal. But there is a right way and there's a wrong way. It's not rocket science. It's not important. It's not about the National Health Service. But it's important to the people who are playing football and are watching your program. Yeah. And if it's important to them, it has to be important to you. So you invest your passion in it. Now, in my case, sometimes uh, I invest too much passion in it or have been accused of. But it's certainly not making uppy. I'm not faking it. Yeah. What uh, toll did that t time take on you? Because your um, autobiography, or certainly the first uh, yeah. first uh, half of it anyway, ends with you on the boat to France in a, in floods of tears. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. talk about the toll it took on your family, that your children were getting stick on the streets. I am. Um, and, and looking back now, it, it seems like a, a brutally almost... Uh, a bullying on, on behalf of a nation towards one individual because they had a different opinion about a football team. Yeah. Like it must have, it must have been a, a scary, was it a scary experience? It was, yeah. It was a scary experience for my children, which I deeply regret. Um, because I didn't, you know, that's the selfishness in me and it's the selfishness in anybody who gets involved in a public controversy and doesn't realise that it's having a knock-on effect on their family. And I didn't really get it. Uh, until it was too late, um, and probably that would have stopped me doing. While all that was happening in, on the the RT panel side of things and mm. the, the big Jack and that, that big story, you were also um, your, your journalistic career had had taken flight, and you, as well as sort of taking on the the, the sacred cow of, of of in the football side of things, you were also taking on sacred cows in society in general. Yeah. You had this concept of official Ireland. Yeah. John Hume is one yeah. that, that you that you criticised when, when the, the talks uh, began in the North. Was this part of your upbringing coming to the fore where you were looking to take down some of those um, bastions that, had, that mm. had made the Ireland that you grew up in such an oppressive place? I think... Um, I do think Ireland... Um, can celebrate mediocrity. And I do think there are people walking around the town, and there always have been people walking around the town, occupying positions of great prestige, uh, who are $3 bills. And any chance I get to, or I got, to expose them, I did. Uh, and we're very nice people. It's a lovely town to live in, Dublin. Um, but we're too nice to some people, and there's some awful fakes around the place. Mm -hmm. But you saw it as your job to to, to puncture those people and to, and to well, yeah, kind of somebody necessary. needed to. Yeah, uh, you were never <laughs> going to beat them because mm. there's more of them than there is of us. <laughs> I can tell you that that you were never going to win. But I I don't want to name them <laughs> now, but they know who they are, mm. and. They maybe still feel the scorch marks, but I hope. But the thing is, 
for just one day uh, or one morning, reading the Sunday Independent was where I did most of the stuff, um, people would say, yeah. Um, you talked a moment ago about the, the toll of the uh, being at the centre of a massive World Cup-related yeah. public story uh, and how that uh, had its mark on you. Lo and behold, 12 years later, you're at it again. <laughs> Because Saipan rolls around in 2002 yeah. and you, as well as Roy and Mick McCarthy, you are very central mm. to that story. Um, you're doing Roy's book at the time. Yes. He's obviously somebody who you greatly admire as a person as well as, uh, as a player. But I'm wondering how much Saipan brought together some of those themes of your life, whether it's the incompetence of, of the FAI, the institutional yeah. incompetence, um, and then Roy, that was he the the yeah. little man being crushed under the weight of the of the system. You know, were were those things percolating around your mind at the time? Well, certainly, I thought I took keen side because I actually finished the book the night before they flew. It was the, our last interview for the for his book, the night before they flew to um, uh, Saipan. Um, I thought he was. Make made too much of it. Roy um, is, you know, well, he is what he is. But he was. If we'd have had him, we might have won the, the damn thing. We might have got to the semi-final. South Korea got to Mick the semi-final. Mick disagrees, doesn't he? He thinks he wouldn't have got out of the group. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we'd have done very well. But to lose Roy uh, was terrible because he'd contributed so much to us qualifying in the first place. Um, he had a bad injury, uh, which was really finished his career not long afterwards, a hip injury. Um, now, John and Liam, for example, they thought he didn't want to be there, and they we, we actually fell out, the three of us, over that. Um, they thought I was taking his side because I was writing his book, which, you know, I wasn't, actually, but um, I could understand why they felt that. Now, I don't think Mick and Roy ever got on. I mean, mm. when they were in the same team, I don't think they got on. But Roy's a contrary, you know, mm. Roy's a special item. But did you see him as a kindred spirit though? Not really, no. you were dealing with him with the book, so you knew yeah. his state of mind well, leading he asked up to, in those me months to write, He to asked me to write the book. Mm. I didn't ask to write it. He asked me, which I regard as a compliment. Um, and, I found him and his family, his wife, and their five children, a lovely home, lovely, happy family, very nice man, very charming man. But there's another side to Roy, which is, you know, um, dark or darker. Mm. Um, I don't see him as a kind of spirit at all. I mean, I'm a much more, um, first of all, I couldn't play. <laughs> but secondly, I'd, I'd be a much more um, uh, kind of, softer uh, piece of work than Roy. Roy is, uh, the reverse side of Roy is, is, is tough. You know, you can see it in him. Mm. Uh, he's intolerant. Uh, and it's a shame because I remember John and I talking about him when he went into management at Sunderland. And we thought, we had great hopes. Because we thought he really was some leader, you know, as a player, and he was. He was a great, great, great player. But it never happened because of his intolerance with players. And you could see that when he was manager of the Irish team, um, that he was pretty much fighting with players, you know, John mm. Walters, uh, Declan Rice, 
you know, we could have Declan Rice if it wasn't for um, his experience, perhaps, in the Martin O'Neill, Roy Keane camp. He witnessed things and we didn't cap him. Yeah. Declan Rice. So, you know, you've obviously had uh, distance from, from Roy now. You sort of fell out or he certainly wasn't happy with some yeah, of the things you were saying sh- about him. You've yeah. said, you've met and said nice things to Mick McCarthy. You've even, when he passed away, paid tribute to Jack oh, Charlton. Like, do you yeah. have a more nuanced view now of some of those great battles of the past? Yeah, well, I think you'd be foolish if you didn't have a more nuanced view at my age. Yeah. Um, I actually, um, I don't hold or bear grudges. I, I never said anything bad about Jack as a person. I always thought Jack was, I mean, John and I occasionally have a drink with him. Uh, John was very friendly with him, of course, in their Leeds time. I thought of Jack was, uh, he was uh, grumpy, but nice mm. in, a, in his own grumpy way. I, and he was a decent man, Jack, very decent man. So I wouldn't, um, would never really get personal with people. I, I would never bear a grudge. I mean, if I saw someone, uh, I'd always say, you know, forget it. Mm. What are we doing? We're talking about football. I mean, it's people, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, perspective. Why would you be fighting with someone about a football match yeah. in any serious <laughs> way? And I think Jurgen Klopp said it most um, interestingly this season, Tommy, last season, during the season, he said football is the most important of the unimportant things. Yeah. And that's yeah. really how I feel about it. I thought it was a brilliant way of articulating yeah. uh, what it actually is. You, you were broadly supportive of, of John Delaney and his, yes, his time was, there, yeah. his regime is, was mm. a disaster financially and structurally yeah. for Irish football. Yeah. Is that something you regret now? I mean, you were there at yes. the famous 50th birthday, weren't you? I was, yeah. Actually, yeah, I was there. Um, yes, it is. Um, it's something I regret. Um, uh, it was, I didn't know. I mean, it, it, a lot of people can say that, but um, we were told things were fine. The money was fine. I put the Aviva and the fact that we were at the Aviva down to him uh, and didn't really consider the debt, which may have come at the wrong time financially for the association. But I thought the Aviva was a much grander place at home for Irish soccer. But I did, yeah, I I did believe in the Delaney hype. I bought into it, yeah, definitely. And do I regret it? Yes, I do, Uh, very much so. Um, the panel is no more. Yes. Um, sadly, we lost Bill a few years ago. Um, John and Liam are hale and hearty as, yeah. uh, as, as you are yourself. Um, what is its legacy, do you think? And I often compare it the way the sport is discussed maybe before you guys came along uh, and, and the way it is now. Uh, mm-hmm. And even in some of the UK stations that, that you would have been critical of, there's a much more forensic yes. and, and open, open debate going on. Do you think it did have a, do you think it did change the game in that way? I hope so. Yes, I think that um, I think soccer or Gaelic games or any sport deserves good, rigorous analysis. Uh, people love it. So if the panel in any way contributed to taking um, football 
analysis seriously, then that's good. I mean, people do restaurant reviews. Mm. They, there's theatre critics, uh, and they're taken seriously. Why shouldn't football critics? Football is our theatre. It's what we do. It's what we love. Mm. So I think that's what I believed we should be doing, and that's why we approached it with a degree of seriousness, a passion, um, sport matters people in this country. And they deserve, therefore, uh, intelligent uh, and informed analysis. We started off talking about your upbringing and your parents and the influence that, that they would have had and their sense of integrity and the things that they believed in. Um, in, in your book, you talk about when you start becoming a public figure and, uh, you know, yeah. a, a public advocacy, as I think yes. you call it in your book, but certainly an outspoken critic of, mm. uh, on various issues, that your parents were uncomfortable with that. They were, yeah. Um, that they often felt that, I think your, the line in your book is your mother said, that fella, there's, yeah, there's you that and, and there's she that fella on the She saw me on the television when I was in there. She said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's, who's that fella? Do you think they were proud of, of what you did? No, my mother and father didn't like it at all. Um, didn't, no. Didn't like the controversy, didn't like the the sort of challenging uh, persona. No, they didn't like it. And I, I regret now that I made them feel uncomfortable, really. Um, it, it didn't occur to me. Um, I was doing my thing, you know, and... They were decent, modest people, um, and I think they would have thought they wouldn't have thought a great deal now of a show off, you know, mm. or someone who was putting himself about out there. Uh, and I can see where they're coming from, and I regret it. Mm. Um, finally, then I mentioned in your uh, work, whether it's football or but specifically not in, in, in general commentary about Ireland, like you have been yes. a very ambivalent relationship with what the country has been and, and been through. And we've talked about it. Um, you know, you've called it a kip at times, a yep. sick country in many institutional ways. Mm. For all its problems now, this country, um, it is much more socially uh, liberal, yes. uh, inclusive. And a lot of those old bastions of official Ireland, of yes. which you were a scourge, have, have fallen away. Mm. Um, does that please you and do you feel that that's part of your legacy that you've helped change things in some small way? Well, I wouldn't attribute it to me, but I certainly think that uh, it is a kinder uh, and a more just society than the one I grew up in and the one before that. Yes, it's a more just society now that we have and I'm very happy for that. I wouldn't attribute it to anybody like me. But it has happened, and it's a good thing, and I welcome it. And finally, would you have uh, regarded yourself as a good pro? I was a good pro, yeah. If I was given the job or work, I'd have a go at it, yep. And you did it well. Eamon, thanks for telling us your story. It's my pleasure, Tommy. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.